Well, let's put the cards on the table and ask it straight. Is the New Testament anti-Semitic? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So... Israeli elections, right now the exit polls are about to be released or have been released first exit polls. You know, those are not totally reliable. There are reports of voter voter turnout being a little lower than expected in some places, a lot lower. How's that going to play out? What's that going to mean? We'll talk about that, but we're going to focus on scripture today. I know it's not Thursday. I know we have Thursday Jewish Thursday, but show me where is it written that we can't have a Jewish focus on another day of the week. Where, show me where that's written. And actually, it's our show. We make the rules. So when you look at Scripture, here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. 866-348-7884. In fact, any Jewish-related question, Hebrew-related question, Messianic prophecy-related question, Israel or Islam-related question, one where you normally would have called in on a Thursday. Instead, you can call in today. Even though it's Tuesday, we'll make this a thoroughly Jewish Tuesday. I know the alliteration is not quite the same, but it works. 866-348-7884. It was not my experience growing up, but the experience of a good number of friends of mine over the years, Messianic Jewish colleagues and other Jewish friends, that when they were children at school, other kids started picking on them, sometimes physically attacked them, others verbally accused them, and they said, you killed Christ. You killed Christ. I'm talking about school children. And the, the kids came home crying and asked their mommy, who's Christ? And, and, and I didn't kill anybody. Why do these kids think that I killed somebody? And who is Christ? Where do they get these notions? Well, the Jews killed Christ. I'm going to be speaking with someone later this week doing an interview, not sure when it will air yet, who's basically said saying the Jews killed Christ is no different than saying the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Is that true? Are Jews Christ killers? Is there a responsibility on all Jews of all ages? Are all Jews somehow guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus? These are some of the questions we're going to take up because, friends, There is a very dangerous, toxic, rising tide of anti-Semitism. We see it now right in our Congress. We see it in society at large. We see it, of course, around the world. For years now, it's been reported that levels of world anti-Semitism are just as high as they were before the Holocaust. And you couldn't blame that on the modern state of Israel. It did not exist before the Holocaust. So you say, well, you're just being paranoid. Nobody can criticize Jews. Actually, it's not a matter of criticism. It's a matter of lies and libels and misrepresentations that for centuries have led to the shedding of Jewish blood, often in catastrophic terms. And when we see those things, we draw attention to them. Look, 
black Americans have every reason to be sensitive to acts of discrimination against their community, given our history. And, and yes, there can be an overreaction sometimes. And yes, sometimes racism can be perceived when it's not there. The same way sometimes anti-Semitism can be perceived when it's not there. But let's not minimize what is there. Let's not minimize the problems that do exist. Let's face them head on. Later this year, the new updated revised edition of my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, is due to be released. That is October, excuse me, September of this year, September 17th, I think. It is a, a book that has been continuously in print since 1992, translated into more languages than any book that I've written, and one that has uniquely resonated with readers around the world, many of whom have wept as they read the book. I remember it. I've repeated this several times. My translator working on the book in Chinese, emailing me and, and saying, Dr. Brown, I am wailing and screaming as I'm translating this book. The, the pain of what professing Christians did to Jewish people in Jesus' name through the centuries. Just the other day, I got a note from a rabbi saying, every day I get treated as if I am subhuman or inhuman because I don't believe in Jesus from professing followers of Jesus. And we've seen where this has led over the centuries. The question is, is the New Testament itself anti-Semitic? In other words, when Christians have certain attitudes about the Jewish people, when Christians speak in certain ways about the Jewish people, when some Christians say, well, the Jews killed Christ, are they simply saying what the New Testament says? Are they simply giving an accurate assessment of what is written in the New Testament? Now, again, I'm glad to interact with you on that subject and any Jewish-related call you have, whether it's contemporary Israel or the Hebrew Bible, phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. But let's, let's start with one text, John chapter 8, verse 44. John 8, 44. And we are familiar with these words where Jesus says to some of his Jewish listeners, who were rejecting his message, he says this, John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So it is commonly said, Jews are children of the devil. This broad statement. Jesus was speaking to Jews who rejected him. The vast majority of Jews reject Jesus. Therefore, Jesus was saying, of the Jewish people, you are of your father, the devil. Now, can we simply extrapolate from that, that any Jew today who is not a follower of Jesus is a, is a child of the devil and has the devil as their father? Can we extrapolate that and, and make that comment? Only if you are willing to say the same thing about every human being on the planet that is not a follower of Jesus. In other words, Gentile, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, nominal Christian, whoever, 
You say, well, Jesus didn't say that there. He was just speaking to Jewish people. Well, let's take a look at some other verses, shall we? What's written in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19? 1 John 5, 19. Are you ready? We know, John writing to believers, that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Hmm. So everyone outside of Jesus, according to 1 John 5, 19, lies in the power of the evil one. Or some translate it, lies under the power of the evil one. That would say that Jews who don't believe in Jesus are no more, quote, children of the devil than Gentiles who don't believe in Jesus are, quote, children of the devil. Or how, how about another verse? Let's see what Paul has to say. We got John's word here. Let's see what Paul has to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. All right? We'll start in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, Paul writes, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. All right, so let's look at this. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So 1 John 5, 19, the whole world outside of disciples of Jesus lies under the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, all those who do not believe have been blinded the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Let's look at one more verse. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. And you, speaking to the believers in Ephesus, but this applies to every human being before they were saved. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, so notice this, according to Paul, everyone outside of Jesus, we are following the prince of the power of the air, and we are by nature children of wrath. So according to the New Testament witness, every human being outside of Jesus is blinded by the God of this world under the power of the evil one, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, a child of the devil, if you want to use this terminology in this respect. So what's that, what's that telling me? That Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus are no more, quote, children of the devil than Gentiles who do not believe in Jesus. And in fact, in much of the world, Gentiles are much more responsible and culpable 
because they've heard of Jesus more. And in their culture, many times he's more believed and revered and respected, whereas in much of the Jewish world, he's not thought about, especially the religious Jewish world. He's, he's not even a figure that, that occupies thought and focus. And, and most have never heard the gospel preached in any clear way in the religious Jewish world. In any case, to say that Jews are uniquely children of the devil is contrary to the New Testament. You say, well, it's offensive to say anyone's a child of the devil. Yeah, I understand that. I'm not arguing with the offense of it, but I'm saying that according to the New Testament, Jews are no more children of the devil than are Gentiles who do not believe in Jesus. Stand with the word, friends. Phone lines are open. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us. It is Tuesday, but we're treating this like it was thoroughly Jewish Thursday. So any Jewish-related calls will be glad to take. Just looking at a headline on Jerusalem Post, Gantz verse, so that's Netanyahu's opponent, Unclear who won as exit polls are released. So just a quick little primer for you if you're not familiar with the Israeli elections. Even though you have a prominent leader, all right, you can have a, a Benjamin Netanyahu or Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz or whoever the particular candidates are, you vote for a party, all right? So you vote for Netanyahu's party, Likud. All right. But you are not voting directly for that individual to get in. In other words, you cannot elect Netanyahu like you could elect Donald Trump or Barack Obama. You elect the party. So, well, how's that work? So the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, has 120 seats to govern. You need 61 seats. You say, oh, so the Likud party gets 61 or more seats and they're elected. Well, if that happened, fine, but that's not the way it works. Right now, there are 40, count them, four, zero, 40 different parties running in Israel. <laughs> yeah, 40. You, talk, you know the, the, the joke, if you have two Jews in a room, you have three opinions. 40 different parties running. It's estimated that about 14 of those parties will get enough votes to to qualify to get a seat. I think you need like three and a quarter percent of the vote, something like that. And then that qualifies you to get a seat. Uh, otherwise, you'd it'd be completely fragmented. All right. So what happens now is this. Let's say Likud gets, let's say it gets 32 uh, votes or 32 seats. And the Blue and White Party, the Gantz Party, let's say it gets 30. So now Netanyahu has the first opportunity to broker deals with all the smaller parties that got votes. All right, will you join my coalition? Oh, not unless you give me this. All right, will you join my coalition? Well, if you give me this. So Netanyahu in the last election had to rely on ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties. You so say that's a good thing, right? Well, not really. 
because they have one focus only and it, and it's for the good of their own people. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, they're very hostile to Messianic Jews for one. And the more power they have, the more difficult they make it for Messianic Jews coming into the country or having rights within the country. That's negative. The other thing is they will fight for as much government funding as possible so the men can learn and study all day, study Torah and rabbinic literature all day rather than work. They'll mainly live on a poverty level, and, and they have no problem with that, but they'll do it with government funding, which much of the rest of the country resents. And then, of course, they will fight against any of the ultra-Orthodox having to serve in the military, whereas everybody else does, unless you're an Arab citizen, you're not required to serve in the military. So many of the Messianic Jews are concerned by that. Many Israelis concerned by that, but that's what Netanyahu needs to rely on. Now, a couple of elections back, he was able to get in without having to rely on those parties, but now he does, will have to most likely rely on them, almost certainly rely on them. And, and some that, that are right, so right-wing politically that others have accused them of being racist against Arabs, etc. So that's the downside with Netanyahu's uh, victory. Of course, he's strong on security and many of Israel's national interests in dealing with the world. Okay, now let's go a little further here. What if Netanyahu is unable to form a coalition? He's given a certain amount of time. I forget what it is, but he's given a certain number of weeks to form a coalition. If he's unsuccessful in doing it, then the next party down, then they get to try to form a coalition. Now, it's going to be a little harder for them because they don't have as many to start but maybe they have a little bit broader alliance. Now, this will be a more left-wing party, but not radical left like America. There are some radical left parties, but not in, in dominance in Israel. So if another party gets in, then they have time to try to make a coalition work. And if neither one can, then you have to vote again. Then, then you have to go back to the drawing board, so to say, as I understand the process. So even if... Netanyahu's party has the most votes, it doesn't mean that he'll be able to successfully set up a government. Yeah, a very interesting system there, isn't it? 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. I want to look at a few more New Testament passages today asking the question, is the New Testament itself anti-Semitic? But first, we'll take a call in Oregon. Sasha, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, it, see, it appears that uh, in my study of Scripture, I see a really sharp sort of uh, antithesis between the message of the prophets and the message in the Tanakh as regards to the salvation of Israel. And I guess one verse that stands out to me is in Daniel nine twenty six. Mm -hmm. where uh, Daniel's praying, and he's praying for his people, and he mentions the sins of his people in context. Yeah. And he speaks of, of the atonement there. And that brings me to Romans 10, and I think I try to picture what Paul was thinking about in Romans 10, verses 3 to, to 4, where he speaks of Israel not submitting to uh, the righteousness of God, which I guess we could take as being the Lord Jesus himself, in, in a sense. Um so my question was, do you see, I guess it's puzzling to me as to why, given that the righteousness that came through Messiah is alluded to in the Old Testament, um, why, why didn't that gain in 
momentum among the rabbis throughout the centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, are there any rabbis in your your study that you found that push more in that direction? And also, as a follow up, you know, what kind do you see a, a radical difference in the message of the prophets versus, say, what you read about Moses in Deuteronomy and, and so on? Yes, no, I, I see no difference whatsoever. I, I see a, an absolute amening of what was written. I see an absolute affirmation of Torah. I see an affirmation of of the message of repentance and the call to submit to God's law and to turn to God for mercy. And so you understand that a traditional Jew believes that every moment of every day, they're dependent on God's mercy, that the highest righteousness they could ever attain to in themselves is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of God's righteousness. And that they ask him for mercy and that they, they prove their repentance by their deeds and, and by living a way that they seek, uh, that they believe is pleasing to him. And as they're reading scripture, what they see is God gave us laws. He said, these laws are forever. He said that it'd be passed down from generation to generation. He said, anyone that tells us to follow other gods, we're not to do it. They find the whole of the Hebrew Bible reinforcing that. And the way they understand the message of Jesus, the Messiah, it's basically annulling the laws. It's basically annulling the covenant it's basically telling the people that there's a whole new way that was never spoken of before and that they've been told that anyone that comes with a uh, offering a new way contrary to what Moses laid down, that we shouldn't follow that person. Just like Jesus tells us if someone comes sure. and claims to be the Messiah today, don't, uh, don't believe them, don't listen to them. In, in, in any case, what I would say is that the message that's very clear to us and that we see God establishing his righteousness through the Messiah. So the righteousness of God being God's gift of righteousness through the Messiah, that that is not something they would see clearly taught in Scripture. They, they wouldn't clearly see it in, in Daniel 9 as well. They'd have another way of reading the text. And, and here's what I discovered, right. Sasha. Obviously, I'm a fervent believer in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Obviously, having debated rabbis for years and interacted with the Jewish community since I was saved, since over 47 years now, in steady interaction with my community and uh, constant interaction with religious Jews over that time, uh, I can say that my experience of dealing with religious Jews was different than my experience of dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses and other cult members, meaning that I was able to instantly demolish the cult members and instantly demolish their misinterpretation of scripture. But when I began dealing with religious Jews, I found answers, which ultimately I reject answers, which ultimately I say, no, don't line up, but made much more sense had, had, ah, okay. I could see how you read it like that. It's just not the right way of of reading it. So that's the interesting thing. When you, when you start to study the scriptures, from a traditional Jewish perspective, uh, things change dramatically. Look, I, w- I was talking to one traditional rabbi, a, a very nice guy. We've, we've met face to face a few times and spent time together. And he's, and you know, we were talking about trying to understand things from the other one's viewpoint. And he said, I've read Isaiah 53 over and over, and I can't see how you, you think it refers to Jesus. In other words, he's, he sees it so much as referring yeah. to the righteous remnant within Israel and in a larger context of Isaiah. So, you know, you could just say, well, they have a veil over their eyes, you know, whatever. But the the bottom line is... to to that point. Yeah. Yeah. 
To, to that point, let me just, uh, that's probably a good segue is, is it possible in your mind that the doctrine of election, you know, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, for example, might apply here, and, and the picture I have in mind is Jesus sitting with Nicodemus where he says, you know, you, you must be born from above. Yeah, tell you I'm, I'm just going to jump in because i got a break. No, I, I don't believe it's simply a matter of election. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated is, is from Malachi 1, speak about the nations as a whole. And he certainly didn't save every Jew and reject every Edomite or descendant of Esau. It has to, be with, it has to do with calling for service. But Paul's whole point, Romans 9, 10, 11, is you're responsible. You're responsible. God's word, end of Isaiah, uh, uh, Romans 10, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient people. And Paul says, have they not heard? So there is culpability, ultimately, for all of us. But thank you, Sasha, for your questions. Much appreciated. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I am looking at exit poll results. A few minutes ago, one exit poll said that Likud and Blue and White both got 36 seats in Knesset. So a tie. Not sure what happens with a tie in terms of working out of government. Another exit poll said, no, Blue and White has 37 seats and Likud only 32. And then Again, can Blue and White put together an adequate coalition to get the extra 24 seats to get it to 61? But these are exit poll results. These are not the final poll results. So we still do not know for sure. This is Michael Brown. Even though it's Tuesday, we're making this as if it was thoroughly Jewish Thursday. So this is a thoroughly Jewish Tuesday. You have a question about the Israeli elections a question about the Hebrew Bible, Messianic prophecy question, Jewish-related question, by all means, give me a call, 866-348-7884. Is the New Testament anti-Semitic? Does 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 specifically say the Jews killed Jesus? Let's take a look. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to start in, let's see, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, and I'm going to read from the ESV, which is very similar to KJV and most English translations, all right? So Paul's writing to the Thessalonians to encourage them because they're being persecuted by their fellow countrymen. For you, brothers— became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, comma, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." So let's just look at this again. Based on this translation, the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out 
and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That would seem to be a very strong indictment by Paul against, quote, the Jews. They killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. They're hostile to God. They are subjects of wrath, objects of wrath, and they oppose the work of the gospel. Who? The Jews. Now, let's read it in the Tree of Life version. All right? Tree of Life version to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's communities in Messiah Yeshua that are in Judea. Notice that. That's the same thing we had in the ESV, right? Judea. For you suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen as they did from the Judean leaders. Ah, or as some others translate, as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God and hostile to all people, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. As a result, they constantly fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So here, we'll just look at the text. Paul speaking about the the suffering of the Thessalonians, and it's just like the suffering that Paul and fellow Messianic Jews are enduring at the hands of their countrymen, right? So you're suffering the same way God's communities, right, instead of churches, communities, and Messiah Yeshua are suffering in Judea, where you suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen as they did from their Judean countrymen. Paul's not making a statement about all Jews worldwide. He's making a statement about the Judeans, or in particular, the Judean leaders, which is often how the Greek word Judaeus can be used in the New Testament. Who killed Jesus? Did all Jews worldwide kill Jesus? No. Did all Jews of Judah kill Jesus? No. Who's responsible for putting him to death? The Jewish leadership in Judea, the Judean leaders. And they're also the ones who before killed the prophets. And they're the ones who, who drove the, the Jewish believers out of Judea, who persecuted them in Jerusalem. Who? The Jewish leaders or the Judeans. And look, if you're reading it in Greek, it's very natural. You became imitators of God's communities in Messiah Yeshua that are in Judea. You suffered what we suffered at the hands of the Judeans. They said, well, that's the tree of life translation. And tree of life is, you know, it's heavily Messianic Jewish. Well, I've got in front of me the New King James. How about that? It's not a Messianic translation. This is simply an updating of the King James, right? So the New King James It says this, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Oh, so the New King James says, you suffered from your Thessalonian kinsmen, but we suffered from our Judean kinsmen. Now, Now, notice In the text, there's a comma 
at the end of the verse, all right? Many refer to that as the anti-Semitic comma. Get rid of the comma, and it's telling you that Paul is specifying the Jews, the Judeans, the Jewish leaders who were responsible for the death of Jesus and their prophets and who persecuted them. So Paul was not universally persecuted by all Jews everywhere. All Jews everywhere didn't even know who Jesus was. Much of the Jewish world had never heard of Jesus at the time he was crucified. And it's really after his crucifixion and resurrection that much more is known about him. And, and, and let's, let's just take a look at this. At the end of Matthew's gospel, okay? Matthew's gospel, chapter 21. I want to show you something there. Matthew's gospel, chapter 21. And I, I'm going to read from the King James, all right? Matthew 21, verse 43. Jesus has spoken a parable about judgment on his people. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind to powder. That's normally taken to say Jesus rejected the Jewish people as a whole. He spoke a parable rejecting the Jewish people as a whole. Shall we keep reading? Perhaps Matthew has something to tell us. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Who? The leaders in Judea. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude. What multitude? Who's there? The multitude of Jews. Because they took him for a prophet. So the multitude of the Jewish nation took him to be a prophet, but the religious leaders wanted to get rid of him. And he spoke the parable about them. It does not say he is replacing Israel with the church or replacing Jews with Gentiles. He's replacing the corrupt leadership. And who is the new leadership? All Jews, the apostles, that was the new leadership. And then from there, the Messianic community grew to become largely predominantly Gentile, but still with Jewish roots, still with a Jewish savior, and still with a promise to the Jewish people. Just trying to read the word as written, as opposed to the way it's been abused and misused by anti-Semites through the ages. All right, let's go to the phones. Mason in Maryland. Welcome to the line of fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is Nathan. I just want to say I really appreciate your program. I've been listening to you for a couple of years. And I guess my Jewish-related question is, I have a Jewish boss that I've been working with for about a year. And I'm just curious. Um, we've had some discussions about Jesus, but he puts up a lot of different road, roadblocks. It's very antagonistic, and it's just really hard to get into a really deep conversation with him. And I'm just curious. I, I've I, in other jobs I've had, I've also had other Jewish bosses. I've given them the, your material and got yelled at, and a lot of uh, pretty strong feedback. I've done evangelism mm. with Mormons and other people in other avenues, 
but don't don't get as strong as feedback. I just I just would like you to address that and maybe just just from a Jewish perspective, what what they're I mean, I know that they're told that Jesus is not Messiah, but um, can you just give this framework Yeah. And and, and they, Mason yeah, Mason, and thanks for being a faithful listener and sharing our materials. Is is your boss a religious Jew or more secular? Yep. He, he's secular. Got it. Definitely. Right. So uh, normally there's more openness from a secular Jew than there is from a religious Jew. But bottom line, bottom line is that in much of the Jewish world, Jesus is perceived as being the the source of Jewish suffering through the centuries. Jesus, in their mind, is directly related to the Holocaust. Jesus is directly related to Jew hatred worldwide. And that's why, rather than recognizing him as one of our own, there is this immediate barrier because of centuries of anti-Semitism in Jesus' name, centuries of persecuting Jews in Jesus' name, centuries of telling them, you're a Christ killer, you're a Christ killer. And because of that, the church, rather than drawing Jewish people in, has pushed them away. Now, he could be hostile because he's a sinner, and, and when you speak to him, it shines the light of God on his heart. But, uh, you know, you could ask him, I, I would say, well, wasn't Jesus a Jew after all? And wasn't he like, called a rabbi? And what, what's, your, what's your beef with him? You know, yes, some, some professing Christians have misused his teaching, but what's your beef with him? Just I would ask questions to try to find out who Jesus is to him, and then say, well, let's put aside Jesus for a minute. What about God? Does God exist? You know, you're not a religious Jew. What do you think about that? What do you think about the Ten Commandments? And see if you can use a, a totally other approach. Maybe also you can get them to watch our five-minute video, Is Jesus Kosher for Jews? Is Jesus Kosher for Jews? It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, looking at a New York Times report, exit polls show a dead heat in the race between Benjamin Netanyahu, the polarizing right-wing prime minister. Of course, that's how the New York Times will fit it. And his rival, Benny Gantz, newcomer to electoral politics, who's seen as a centrist. Centrist to the New York Times, a left centrist to others that might be more neutral reporting on this. Uh, highly respected, Gantz, in terms of serving in the IDF as a what general there, but no one knows exactly where he stands politically. Uh, early analysis showed Arab voters headed for historically low turnout. They could have easily increased their parties. There, there's one joint Arab party now. Their standing in the Knesset, was it lack of motivation? Was it lack of hope? Not sure. But that will be analyzed as well. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's take a look at one more text that is commonly used to argue that the New Testament itself is anti-Semitic or that the New Testament itself supports the view that, quote, the Jews killed Christ and all Jews are responsible for that through history. If you want a thorough examination of these verses, get volume one of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. Volume one of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus for a thorough 
evaluation of these verses. But uh, let's take a look in Matthew, the 27th chapter, Matthew chapter 27. And here we have the scene where Pilate is saying, all right, I don't find any guilt in this man, but what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And, and it says this, Pilate's talking to a Jewish crowd and it says, verse 25, Matthew 27, 25, he's saying, I, I'm innocent to this man's blood. I, I'm, I'm willing to acquit this Jesus, right? There's this other guy, Jesus Barabbas, this, this criminal. I'm, I'm willing to, to, to punish the one, right? Bar Abba. Uh, and, and he's guilty, but you know, you get to release a prisoner. It's your call here. So all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and on our children. You say, is that an accurate translation? Yeah, that's an accurate translation of Matthew 27, 25. And no one argues that. Uh, and the Catholic scholar, great New Testament scholar, Raymond Brown, analyzed it and said, yeah, act actually, that is a very believable uh, statement and and could could well be the case now here's the issue here's the issue this is not the entire jewish nation calling on a curse on itself for all generations this is a crowd that assembled that was egged on by corrupt leaders it is not the whole nation it does not represent the whole nation it was a crowd assembled egged on by the leaders who bear the responsibility and what they were saying was Go ahead, crucify him. We take the responsibility. Let the guilt be ours and our children. And in fact, that's what happened. God judged that next generation. He judged that generation and their children. And Jerusalem was destroyed and there was great Jewish suffering. Let me read you Joshua 2.19. This is what the spies tell Rahab the harlot when, when Jericho is going to fall they are going to rescue her family, but that family has to stay within certain parameters. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. In other words, that, that is a Hebrew way of saying it. his blood be on his own head. In other words, he's responsible. He's responsible. So that's all that's being said here. We are responsible. We are our children that even though they did not have the power to invoke this on the entire nation, the fact is the leadership rejected the Messiah. And then as the people heard the message after the resurrection, nationally, the bulk rejected the message and judgment came. But there's nowhere, nowhere that says every generation is going to be punished afresh. That verse does not mean that. Say, we'll take the, if there's going to be punishment, we'll take the responsibility. Let it come on us and on our children. That's it. It's not all generations. And I love how some have taken it and turned it into a prayer. May the Messiah's blood be on us and our children. Yes, may it cleanse us of our sin. But the statement, the Jews killed Jesus, utterly misleading. Contrary to the New Testament, which also speaks of the Roman the, the, the Romans for their complicity, right? With the help of evil men, the Romans that crucified him, Jesus says to them, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Did Jesus only pray that for the Romans? 
or, or for others involved? Did he only pray that, that the Romans would be forgiven and not the others involved in his crucifixion? But, but not only so, it is Jews who followed Jesus. Shall we say the Jews followed Jesus? Because all the first disciples were Jewish. And we read in Acts, 10 and 20, uh, in Acts the 20th chapter that there were tens of thousands, the 21st chapter, excuse me, tens of thousands of Jews who believed in Jesus and were following him. So no, to say the Jews killed Jesus, that is a misleading statement and one that has opened the door to much Jewish suffering through the centuries. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Chad in Canada. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I, I have a question that deals with Passover and Lord's Table. Yeah. I'm wondering, other than the bread and the wine that most Christians use for communion, is there other things that we should be taking into consideration um, when partaking the, the communion or the Lord's Table? And specifically, um, with like the time that we take it, and if the meal, not the Passover meal, but to still take the bread and the wine during a meal with family or with our church family. Right. So uh, one of my friends refers to the way we do things in our church services as the Lord's snack, as opposed to the Lord's table. Uh, This was obviously part of a communal meal that believers celebrated. Was it weekly? Was it daily? Was it monthly? That can be debated. Uh, uh, certainly okay. not yearly. Certainly not yearly. A Passover really? meal yearly, yes. But okay. the communion, oh no, this was something that was regularly done. This was something done regularly when believers gathered together. Uh, that's why Paul makes reference to, you know, people coming in and drinking the wine first, eating the bread first, and getting drunk, etc. No, this was something that was done regularly. We've got fine evidence from, from early church documents that this was something that was done regularly but it was not mandated to be done a specific time, meaning you could, was it daily, weekly, monthly? That can be debated, but the more the better in terms of a remembrance, a recognition. However, the Passover meal, if someone is going to celebrate that, which is more involved than, than just the, the bread and the wine, then that would be something that's annual in conjunction with the Passover. Many churches will have a Jewish believer in Jesus come in and do a Messianic Passover Seder or something like that. Uh, But no, this is not annually for the Lord's Supper. Uh, It was regular part of meals. Now, I'm not saying if churches do it just in, or we're taking communion today, we shouldn't. It's it's a reverent time, and it's a time when we, we think back to what the Messiah did and recognize the sacrifice of his body and blood. However, uh, it, it was originally part of a communal meal, and I think it's great when it's done in that context whenever possible. Hey, thanks for the call. Uh, Zach in Gastonia, North Carolina, real quick, time is short. No problem. Hey, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for taking my call, man. Uh, you bet. You've really been instrumental in my relationship with the Lord well, thank um, as you, far sir. as understanding it from a Jewish perspective. Um, so my question is, was John referring to the memra of the Lord from the Targums in John 1, 1 through 14, and not so much of the Greek understanding of the term logos? Yeah, so the, it's probably both and. Certainly, because he's writing in Greek, and he's, he's speaking of the logos, and logos was a, a well-known 
concept through Philo of Judea, uh, f- through uh, through uh, his his uh, or excuse me, Philo of Alexandria, through through his writings, uh, and and a lot of what's written in Philo about the role of the Logos really parallels a lot of what John is saying in John one. However, the fact that that John would have been familiar with the Targums in Aramaic, that Aramaic was probably his, his mother language growing up in Galilee, uh, that you can make an excellent case that he's referring to the Memra. And as, as I encourage a, a traditional Jew reading it, reading it instead, Memra is the Aramaic word for word. It simply means word, just like Logos in, in its simplicity means word. And uh, it was used as a circumlocution when referring to God, God speaking, God acting, so that it wouldn't be God directly interacting, which was considered uh, problematic. You know, how does the transcendent, eternal, invisible God interact with finite humans? So it's the word of the Lord spoke or the word of the Lord came or the word of the Lord was there. Uh, So read it in the beginning was the Memra. And the memory was with God, and the memory was God. The same was with God in the beginning. All things were made by the memory. Without him was nothing made that was made. And the memory became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. Ooh, does that work? And is that powerfully Jewish? So in my view, both ads were involved in John's thinking. But if you leave out the memra, you leave out significant Jewish understanding. Thank you, sir, for the literate call. And we'll be back with you tomorrow.